right, it's good to see everybody this morning. Again, I apologize for uh, the, the hiccup. Sometimes with technology, things just you know, aren't exactly what you expect they're going to be. But praise team, thank you for being here with us this morning, worshiping. Uh, if you were on the previous live video, hopefully you've been able to find us over here as we've shifted to a second broadcast live video. Go ahead and click share down there at the bottom um, and let other people know that you're, you're there watching. Um, those of you that have texted me to let me know the audio wasn't working, don't text me now because we're using my phone uh, for this. So I won't see your text message for a good... Mm, this sermon's going to be, what, 68 minutes, I think. So um, I, don't have, I don't have as many people to worry about getting to lunch today. So um, I can just make sure it, it goes as long as it needs to. But <laughs> I'm getting some, getting some looks from our praise team on this. But we are in the book of Revelation chapter 4 today. And I do want to thank you if you're joining with us from home. I understand one of our Sunday school classes has gathered uh, at their teacher's home together. So hopefully you're practicing your social distancing there as you you are uh, watching this together. So uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining in and worshiping online with us this morning. Uh, The book of Revelation chapter four, we find these words from the apostle John. It says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I'd heard like the sound of a trumpet was speaking with me and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like Jasper stone with a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face like that of a man and the fourth creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you were, you created all things. And because of your will, they have existed and they were created. Let's pray together. Father, it is now 1130 on a Sunday where many churches, in order to protect the elderly, to protect the vulnerable, to protect those with other health concerns, have heeded the request of our governing authorities to meet separately, to do something different. And Lord, We know that right now you are using even this time 
Lord, we know that there are people that are tuning in to Facebook feeds all across our nation who would not have been in a church service, maybe even on ours right now, hearing the words that I'm praying, the words that that are in your scripture, hearing the Bible read in, in, in its complete context and in truth. And so Lord, I ask that you would use that. Lord, I ask that you would use these men and women that have come together this morning to sing praise to your name, to prepare our hearts for worship, Lord, that we would see something mighty and amazing come from you because of your good work, your good favor. But Lord, your word has just taken us into the throne room of heaven. Your word has just placed us in front of your throne with a bow of emerald extending with with winged creatures crying out holy is the lord with 24 elders bowing down and casting their crowns and just declaring your worthiness and what makes all this amazing is that by the blood of christ you have declared that we are worthy to even be there to even see it So Father, I pray that you would give our hearts ears to hear. Whether we're live in this room, whether we're we're watching this live on, on Facebook right now, whether we're watching a replay of this on Facebook at a later date, Lord, what you can do because your word will not return null and void is amazing. And so we ask you to use us to use this time. Lord, teach us your word. Teach our hearts. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we get into this passage of Scripture and we have a distinctive break that takes place right here at the start of chapter four. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, what we've seen in chapters two and three have been a series of letters to seven churches in Asia Minor addressing everything from their faithfulness to intense persecution, hanging on to the point of death. We've also seen churches that thought they had a good thing going, but really they were just playing the game and not actually worshiping the Lord. We've even seen churches that were putting up with immorality, sexual immorality uh, vulgarity within the church and just thinking it's okay you know I'm not going to judge you you don't judge me and in all of these Jesus calls them out and says no you've got to come and understand what victory is about except for Sardis and Philadelphia where he encouraged them and said it's going to get bad but hold on See, in chapter one, Jesus is right is speaking to John. Now, John's in Patmos and, and, and he has this vision uh, and Christ Jesus, I believe physically in the flesh, appears to him and he describes that in chapter one. And, and, and he says, I need you to write some things, John. I need you to write the things that you've seen, the things that were. I need you to write the things that are, but you also will be writing in this letter that will go to these churches, the things that will be. And so we get to chapter four and we start off with the things that will be. So what we're going to do, if you've got your outline, if you were able to download it off the, off the church Facebook page or print it out before church started, we had that posted about an hour ahead of time to give you time to look at it. Or if you're uh, sitting up here with us and you've got your uh, bulletin because we had a few printed, uh, you'll find that our, our passage this morning, our sermon this morning breaks down in two simple parts. What's in the text 
and then also what we do, our response to, to this. So what we're going to do is start looking through this text of scripture. And, and as I've said many times in the book of Revelation, our sermons that we've been doing here since uh, January, I do not claim, nor will I ever claim to know all the answers to all the images, to all the pieces of the book of Revelation. It is foolish for anyone to do so. There's a reason why God has not given us the exact code for exactly what this means and exactly how this happens. It's not to confuse us, but it's to cause us to continue to rely on him, to continue to look to him. Here's what I can tell you. While we might not know exactly how it plays out, we can know it's his word and therefore it's reliable and true. What we can know for sure is that what we have in here is the best humanly possible description of what will take place and ultimately what the beauty of God's glory is. And so what we find in this passage of scripture is that John is now taken and escorted by way of vision into the throne room of heaven and he shows us that the big picture of revelation is about the glory of God. The big picture of revelation exalts the majesty of God. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. How often do you hear passages of revelation used to talk about destruction and to talk about judgment and to talk about what's wrong and who's going to get broken and making sure you're one of this group or part of this group or you avoid this plague or you all of the things that just kind of circulated around but ultimately from beginning to end the book of revelation is exactly like the bible in that it tells one story about a majestic god that loves you that loves me that desires for us to know him and revelation exalts his majesty. We start off in chapter one and we have the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then we have this image of Christ there in Patmos with John. And Jesus looks at John and John looks at Jesus and tries his best to describe in terms that you and I could wrap our hearts and minds around what he is seeing, what he is hearing. And then we get to Revelation chapter 21. And the beautiful word says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem coming. And in that new city where it comes, there is God who was with us, not apart from us, not separated. God is with us because the ultimate plan of God is to dwell with his people. And so the big picture of Revelation exalts this majestic God in ways that we can see just how beautiful and wonderful he is. So he says this in verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So here we have John being escorted into something different. There's a decisive break. Now, some would say that this call to come up here is just evidence that this is, he's talking about the rapture. He's not talking about the rapture. The rapture, um, if, if for those of you that, that look to the rapture and, and have this strong core belief in the rapture of the church, which we'll get to that in another sermon coming up in Revelation. Uh, but what we find is John is not raptured. This is a vision because he says, and I went up in the spirit. So what John is describing here is that he was physically in Patmos. He was physically there and he was watching and talking with Jesus. And Jesus was giving him these letters to send to the seven churches. And then the rest of Revelation as a letter that these churches would read. But immediately in the spirit, he's caught up. He's given this beautiful vision of God's glory and his majesty. 
Jesus extends to him something that is awesome. And there's a lot that John writes that sounds a whole lot like Isaiah 6 and a whole lot like Ezekiel 1 where we have other throne room images in the Old Testament presented. But he says, come up here and I'm going to show you the things that must take place. And he says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one was sitting on the throne. Now, I just want you to think with me for a second about the utter amazement that John is experiencing being ushered into the throne room of God. The the, the throne room of God. I mean, we have people that get excited because they get a backstage pass to a concert or to a sporting event. You could probably get pretty cheap backstage passes right now to about anything. But you get, these, you get these backstage passes where you can see behind. The, if you go down to Disney World, you can pay an extra fee to see behind the scenes tour of what's underground in Disney and what goes on. If you go to the Biltmore House up in Asheville, you can pay for one of about five different tours that are extra where you could go and see behind the scenes. But here, John is given this behind the scenes look and it's straight to the throne of God. Straight into the presence of Almighty God. And he says in this passage of scripture that I was there and there was a throne standing in heaven and there was one sitting on the throne and he who was sitting was like Jasper Stone and Sardius in appearance. God's glory is emanating from this throne. God's glory emanates from his throne. See, he uses a couple of phrases here. Now, he talks about jasper stone and he talks about sardius or or carnelian. Uh, This was a blood red stone and jasper was kind of like a diamond shining. So I want you to think of the, the contrast of this beautiful sparkling diamond against this blood red stone and just the, the majestic picture that that describes here. I do not think that God looks like something you're going to buy at Zales. I just want you to know that. And I don't think that, that John is trying to describe the jewelry store counter to you in this. I believe John is describing the radiance of God's glory that just emanates and shines. Keep in mind, all of this goes to Revelation, whether we don't have a sun, we don't have a moon, all of that's gone because the light of God's glory gives us all the light that we need. I mean, here, sitting on his throne, is this beautiful, lit up, uh, illuminated God. I'm not talking about like plug it in, light it up. I'm talking about all the light that is necessary is emanating from him because of his glory. His glorious might, his glorious majesty. But then he goes on a little bit further and he says, And he who was sitting on the throne was like Jasper stone and Sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Now I know what you're thinking. Emeralds are green and rainbows are a bunch of colors, right? How is it just the one color? I want you to just think about what this extends. See, what's happening here is is John has started off with this narrow focus zoom straight into the throne. And then he steps it back just a little bit to see what else is in this room. I mean, good grief, you walk into, just picture our sanctuary. Those of you that are sitting in here and everybody else that's been in here, think about the way a sanctuary is, is, is situated. We have a center aisle that zooms all the focus into right here on the platform. 
platform, or you could even say up the stained glass Jesus up here. All of that zooms in a central focus. But then if you pan the camera out a little bit, you can see more of the stage. And then as you pan out a little bit more, you see more of the sanctuary. Then as you pan out a little bit more, you see all of the sanctuary. And that's what happens in in Revelation chapter 4 in this vision. He zooms in and sees the throne and then he backs out and he sees, okay, wait, there is this extension that's going, this green extension. And and I don't think the color green has a, a necessary significant theological meaning except for we see it as an extension of God's mercy. God's mercy extends from his throne. And I want you to think of it this way. Who among us could walk into the throne room of the king uninvited? Remember the story of Esther? In the story of Esther, we have uh, King uh, Artaxerxes, uh, Ahasuerus, whichever, if you want to go with the, the Median or the Persian name, whichever one, or the Greek name, uh, for the, the ruler there uh, in, in the Medo-Persian Empire. And so what happens is he puts his wife to death because she wouldn't do what he wanted to do. And so he has this beauty pageant for his next wife. And Esther, this lowly Jewish girl, she's the one that gets selected to be the queen. And, and he, she finds out this from her cousin Mordecai, this plot to kill the Jews, her people. And so Mordecai says, you got to go talk to the king she says I know that's my husband but if I'm not invited he could kill me I want y'all to know men if your wife is threatened to be in your presence there's something wrong with you there's something absolutely wrong with you but I digress let's bring it back And Mordecai says, you were put here for this time. See, you don't just march into the throne room of the king unless he extends to you an invitation. See, I see this shining God, this beautiful illuminated God that is shining all the light of heaven right here on this throne, extending his mercy that anyone would be able to be in his presence. And that includes us. This is an extension of mercy that John's even able to go and be called up and in the spirit see what he's saying. I want you to just think about how far that mercy goes. God didn't owe it to us to show us what heaven looked like. God didn't owe it to us to show us what, what his beautiful plan would be. But here, by mercy, he has extended to John an invitation through Christ Jesus to come up to the throne room and not just to come up to the throne room, to write down what he sees so that you and I today could know that there is a God who is seated on his throne. That's mercy. Furthermore, because we know that there is a God today who is seated on his throne, we don't have to look to the news media. We don't have to look to the empty grocery store shelves. We don't have to look to the government to figure out what's going on. We know that God, even in the face of pandemic, is on his throne extending mercy. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful God. But the fact that we have this God seated on his throne, because we have this vision, we can also understand that God's throne room is evidence that he fulfills his promises. Because God's not alone in his throne room, is he? He's not sitting there perched on his throne, just, you know, hanging out, waiting for uh, the next prayer request to come in. Maybe, he's, maybe God's up to text messages now. Maybe he gets your prayers request through text. I don't know, or email. I don't know. He's scrolling his uh, godly Twitter feed. I don't know what he's doing. No, he's not alone. Notice in verse four, it says that, and around the throne were 24 thrones. So we're zooming out a little bit. 
So we started off, we zoomed in, and we saw right here at the center of the platform, and then we zoom out a little bit, we realized, hey, that's not all that's on the platform. We've got some drums, we've got a keyboard, we've got guitars, we've got a piano, we've got choir chairs. See, we're zooming out and seeing more, but what it says is there are 24 thrones that are seated around his throne. Not only are there only 24 thrones, notice what else he goes and says. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. God's not alone. He's got 24 elders. Now, I'll tell you what I believe about the 24 elders. There's a lot of speculation because we don't know 100% with all certainty what each image in the book of Revelation means. And I'll continue to warn you about anyone who says they have it all figured out. I promise you, they don't. Here's what I believe. God made some pretty strong promises throughout all of Scripture. First was his promise to Israel. You will be my people, I will be your God. How many tribes were there of Israel? There were 12. And then he says, I'm going to send my Messiah who's going to ransom you, who's going to redeem you, who's going to, uh, who's going to pay the purchase price for your freedom, for your, for your salvation. And so he sends his son, Jesus. How many apostles did Jesus have? He had 12. We count the original 11 plus Paul would be the 12th one because Judas, we know what happened to Judas. 12 plus 12 and in, in the math that they taught when I was in elementary school is 24. 12 plus 12 now is 10 plus 10 plus 2 plus 2 uh, and still get to 24, but you got to add to it. 24. God fulfills his promises. Furthermore, look at what's going on with these 24 elders. Notice it says there that they were in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. See, Jesus has just promised to the seven churches in Asia Minor, to Ephesus, to Sardis, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, several things among which he has promised them. If you are one of the ones that overcomes, you will have white garments. If you are one of the ones that overcomes, you will have a crown. To Philadelphia, he says, hold fast so you don't lose your crown he also tells them look you will reign with me he has promised victory he has promised hope he has promised all of heaven and here we have 24 representatives sitting on thrones in white garments with crowns exactly as it was promised to Israel and to the church that you are my people now, I don't know what you think God's promised you. If it doesn't line up with scripture, it was a false promise that somebody gave you and it wasn't from God. But here's what I can tell you. What the word of God says is that God is faithful and just because he alone is the one that sits on the true throne and he alone is the one that can deliver and he put 24 elders around himself to show you that he means business. In case you didn't think the cross was enough to know that God means business. In case you didn't think that the life and work of Christ Jesus, in case you didn't think that the church was being, has been faithful for 2,000 years to fulfill the call, to proclaim the good news of salvation to the nations, God says, okay, well, here's an end time picture for you. I'm on my throne. I've got 24 elders that are clothed exactly like I told you they would be clothed because I fulfill my promises. That's an awesome God. The fact that he's on his throne proves, shows, demonstrates that he fulfills his promises. There's another thing about God's throne room I want to make sure we see this morning. 
and it's something I believe that should compel each one of us in new and mighty ways. And that is ultimately that God's throne room is a scene of worship. It's a scene of worship. Yeah, we talk a lot about the, the throne of God and judgment and punishment and, and edicts and laws and all these things. That go it's ultimately worship. It's ultimately pointing back to who this God is. He says, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And as we mentioned uh, uh, earlier in chapter one, that, that seven spirits of God, it's not like there are seven Holy Spirits, one for each continent or anything like that. What we're looking at is the fullness. Seven is the biblical representative of fullness. The fullness of the spirit, the fullness of the presence of God is there. It's not that this is some like pseudo God. It's not as the Mormons say that God was a guy like us and he lived his life a certain way and so he got to be God of this planet. No, no, this is the fullness of everything. He is real, he is true, he is reigning, he is merciful, he is majestic, he is mighty. And it says that before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Maybe these words sound familiar to you over in Revel, Isaiah chapter six. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the train of his throne filled the temple. And around the throne, there were, there were the beings. They had six wings with two he flew, with two he covered his eyes, two he covered his feet. And they called back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. It's consistent worship of God because the host of heaven exalts the holiness of God. And if the host of heaven is already in the process and already in the practice of exalting the holiness of God, why don't we? Why is that not our consistent walk, our consi the consistent measure that we take to exalt the holiness of God? And we get into this passage of scripture and man, I wish I could tell you exactly why there's a lion and, and why there's a man and why there's an eagle and why there's a beast. I can't. I didn't make these creatures. And I've read a lot, I've read far and wide of why it's this and this is wild creation and this is this and this represents this age of the church and this is these leaders. I love the way um, one commentator described it. He described it this way, if I can find my right note sheet. This section tells us why the four living beings represent, be, excuse me, this section also tells why the four living beings represent the whole of animate life. They are performing, I want you to hear this, they are performing the function that all of creation is meant to fulfill. That is, all things were made to praise God for his holiness and glorify him for his work of creation. All of this bears out that it is not only the ideal purpose for creatures, but also that someday this purpose will actually be fulfilled, not only in heaven, but also on earth, since it is an anticipation of the final 
consummation. In other words, we're supposed to join in with the host of heaven now to proclaim the holiness and praise of God. That's why Jesus says, if you don't, even the rocks and the trees will cry out. All of creation. You know what it dawned on me one time? A dog being a dog is just praising God for making him a dog. A cow being a cow is praising God for making him be a cow. A whale being a whale is praising God for making it a whale. Yet we as people want to curse God for making us. However it is he's made us with a deformity, with something wrong in our brain, with something wrong in our body. God made us, the book of Psalms says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So let's praise God as his creation. Let's praise God for all that he has made. The host of heaven is proclaiming God's glory. Holy, holy, holy. And there's a response to this. It says there in the passage of scripture that when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, that the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him. Think about that beautiful picture. The worship of creation calls those that were made in the image of God to worship him even more. We should be able to look at the beauty of the world that God made and fall on our faces before him. Why? Because these elders respond in praise. We are showing the worship in the throne room of heaven. He says there, they'll cast their crowns before the throne and say, worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Holiness is the central attribute of God. It has no need for triple expression, but since the distinction of God from all created order is endemic to the term. But the repetition of the term three times must have seemed to John to have been the same as saying holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. This is followed by the emphasis of the unity of the Godhead. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is our praise. This is our worship. In the throne room of God. So what what do we do with this? Maybe you're sitting at home. Maybe you're sitting at a coffee shop. Maybe you're sitting in a friend's house watching. And you want to ask, we want to ask the questions about, okay, what does this mean for me? What is my response to God's majesty? There at the bottom of your outline sheet, if you have it, I've got, I've got uh, seven blanks. These are just response questions that we want to ask. Just in response. So sometimes our greatest response to the word of God is to start asking diagnostic questions and let the Holy Spirit deal with us. Maybe the first question we need to ask is, what is it that keeps me from bowing down to God? What is it that keeps me from bowing down to him? He says there in the passage of scripture, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power. See, that, that statement, that phrase, starting with worthy, starts asking us the question, but if he's already on the throne, if he's already seated there, doesn't he already have 
honor? Doesn't he already have praise? But as we find these words on the lips of the elders as they have bowed down to him, because in his presence they realize that there is nothing of themselves that is worthy of honor, that is worthy of praise. It is all about the work in the hand of God. And so what they are demonstrating is that we bring all of us, all that we are as his image bearers, as his created people, and we bow before him. We give it to him. We yield all that we are, all of our intellect, all of our thought, all of our strength, all of our power. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. What keeps us, what keeps me from bowing to God? Second question we might want to ask is, what do I hold on to for myself? What is it that I hold on to for myself? This is also the picture of response that the elders give us. We find there in verse 10 that they bow down before him and they cast their crowns before the throne. They, on their face, on their knees, before this God who alone is worthy, take the one possession they have in heaven and toss it at the feet of God. This golden crown, see, it's called the victor's crown, the Stephanus crown. It's, it's the one that, that now resembles the majesty of God in our lives, but it's because of the victory Christ Jesus has won for us. He, they cast that. But too often we want to hold on to what we have. God is asking us to, to yield everything to him, and we, we don't. We, we hold back. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what am I holding on to he proclaims he's worthy he described he's described as the only one who is worthy is he worthy of everything you have is he worthy of your your time your treasure your your your, your intellect is he worthy does my worship compel others to praise him does my worship, we, we could make a strong case right here for the necessity of corporate worship. I know some of you might be watching online and say, man, I could get used to this. We should just start streaming our services all the time. I can stay home. And No, 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 no. Uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that doesn't mean that in the future we won't offer online streams. But the necessity and it's given to us in Hebrews chapter 10 that we should not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some. Because when we're together, we have this sense of my worshiping God here compels someone else to worship as well. I've watched it in congregations. I've watched it in sanctuaries. You got... You got this one couple over here. They're over here and they're worshiping and people notice, man, they're, man, they're, they're allowing the Holy Spirit to, to lead them and guide them. And it frees other people up to say, you know what, I, I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit lead me in worship. Does your worship, does your approach to worship compel others to be involved? Your presence in worship can compel others to worship. And sometimes we don't feel like it. But see, these, these created beings are flying around the throne and they're just praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, 
uh, who is, who was, who is to come. They're proclaiming this, and in response to that, the elders bow down. Does your worship compel someone else to praise? All of this could really be put under the umbrella question of do we see God for who he is? Do I see God for who he is? Notice the exaltation language. I was called up. Immediately in the spirit, I was taken up to this place. And immediately there is one who is sitting on this one throne. And everything else pans out from there. Everything else is in response to that. And everything else funnels back to this holy God who alone is worthy. It says, worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. This exaltation of the majesty of God. That's what's happening in the throne room. That's why it looks the same in Isaiah 6. Holy is the Lord. In Revelation 4, holy is the Lord. We cannot see God as anything but holy. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's mighty. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's a God of justice. But it's because of his holiness that we can understand and see the beauty of everything else he's doing. Do we see God as this holy and mighty God, not a being, God. Do I trust his promises? It's easy to say that, yeah, I trust God's promises. It's the church thing to do, right? You don't want to be seen as a doubting Thomas or a bad Christian for Wrestling with the question of of God's promise. But this isn't a question for today. This is a question for tomorrow. A question for next week. A question for next year. This isn't a question for how special an individual I am. It's a question for Do I see that God alone is able to provide? God alone is able to save. See, these elders are sitting around this throne. And in chapter chapter four of the book of Revelation, we see this beautiful picture of white garments and golden crowns and sitting on thrones. And that's, man, that's kind of awesome to think about, to think, okay, yeah, you know, God did say, Jesus did say you, you, you will be with me in paradise. And he did promise to the, to the, 12, the seven churches that, that you will reign with me in, in, in my kingdom. And all of these things, yeah, that sounds really cool. But isn't it a little easy to just think they're kind of far-fetched? Why, why would I have that opportunity? Right where you're sitting right now. You have the opportunity to say, you know what? I believe that God is true. Right now, you have the ability to look at his word and see his holiness and see that there is evidence that he will fulfill his promise. But you also have the opportunity to look to the world around you and see near famine conditions if you look at our grocery store shelves. To see pandemonium breaking out. Man, somebody was telling me, uh, my neighbor was just telling me just yesterday that his, wa- his, his co-worker's wife 
was at Costco over here in Peachtree City, had a shopping cart full of stuff because that's what everybody was doing. She turned to get something and somebody took her shopping cart. Those are the days that we live in. They didn't just take an item out of the cart, took the whole cart. That's the pandemonium of where we live right now. So, so let me just ask you, are you trusting God's promises that God himself would be the one to, to take care of us even in days like this? To take care of our nation, to take care of our schools, to take care of our governing authorities, to take care of you. Do you trust his promises? What about his throne? We're ushered into this throne room. And so let me ask you a question about that. Will his throne be victory or judgment? Will his throne for you be victory or judgment? The Bible makes it explicitly clear that all of us will appear before the seat of judgment. Paul says it, that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus says there's a day coming in Matthew chapter 25 where all will be gathered before the throne of God. They'll be separated into two groups and there'll be one on the left that are cast out and there'll be one on the right that are taken in. Will it be a time of victory where the crown is extended or a time of judgment? And so I gotta ask you about this holy God. Because he's holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. So your sin and my sin must be accounted for and that only happens with the blood of Christ Jesus. That only happens because of what he has done. Don't wait to get to that throne room to say, you know what, God, I heard about that one time, but I didn't do anything. Do something with it now because he is worthy. He is holy. He is able. He's offering you victory. And so this backs us into a final question. And it has to do with these elders. These elders are clothed in white garments. And white garments, a lot of times, especially in the ancient Near East culture, was, was, a, was a, a purity rite symbol for, for uh, times of worship. We see it in a lot of uh, Eastern and Near Eastern r- religions. We see white garments used. But specifically, we see it here because Jesus has promised, hold fast, repent, and you will be clothed in garments of white. Jesus is describing purity for those that have turned from the way of the world to follow him. So I've got to ask you a question. Last question. What do you value more? White garments or worldly pleasures? Do I value white garments more than I value worldly pleasures? Because what we come to when we enter the presence of a most holy God is that all that is worldly is going to disappear. You want to know why we get glorified bodies to live in eternity with God forever in heaven? It's because these earthly bodies made of dust cannot stand his presence. That's why God told Moses, nobody's seen my face and lived. So I'll tell you what, I'll hide you. And when I get past, you can look at the back of my head. See, these white garments are symbolic with the purity of the blood of Christ. And so do we value purity in who we are and what Christ has made us to be because of his great name? Or do we value the way of the world? See, we get into this throne room and it seems like I'm asking a bunch of restricting questions and it seems like, man, you're getting to it, man, you're sucking all the fun and all the joy out of this, Evan. I mean, come on, is, isn't this supposed to be a fun, exciting time of worship? Absolutely it is. It absolutely is. 
But we dare not forget that God is a holy and mighty God. We get into his throne room and we see his glory arrayed. We see his splendor on display and we have to, hear me, we have to evaluate. What have I done about this mercy he's extended? What have you done today? We're going to have a time of invitation. That's right, on Facebook Live, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is an opportunity for those of you that are present, those of you that are watching uh, through our live stream, to, to ask yourself the question. Maybe you pray through some of these diagnostic questions. If you're watching the group, uh, maybe even talk for just a moment. Hey, is this me? But to ask God, hey, you've shown yourself on this holy and mighty throne. What about me? Have you trusted Christ today? Have you said, you know what? This world's got some pretty nice stuff, but nothing compares to the beauty of knowing Christ. Nothing compares to knowing that he is the mighty and holy God and King. So as we have a prayer and as we have a time to sing, I'm going to ask you where you are. Wherever you're watching, whether it's a coffee shop, libraries are closed, whether it's a coffee shop, a living room, uh, maybe maybe you're in a public place. I'm going to ask you right now to ask yourself, to ask God, what's in my heart?